Chemical Watch podcast. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Hello and welcome to this week's news podcast hosted by members of the Chemical Watch team. I'm Kate Lowe, Global Managing Editor at Chemical Watch, and for today's episode, I'm joined from Brussels by our Emerging Markets reporter, Ginger Harvey, from Cambridge, UK, by our Europe Desk Editor, Luke Buxton, and from Washington, DC, by our North America Managing Editor, Terry Highland. Today, we'll be discussing Saudi Arabia, where the government is hastening the approval of a technical regulation to restrict certain substances in electronics and electrical equipment with approval expected by as soon as 7th of January. We'll also be taking a look at the UK where the government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs or DEFRA has confirmed that following the end of the Brexit transition period, its independent ROS regulation will follow the same legislative timeframes for exemptions set by the EU. But first, let's turn to the US and New York specifically, where on the 2nd of December, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed legislation to ban the sale or distribution of, of food packaging with intentionally added per and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS from the 31st of December, 2022. The move follows approval by the New York legislature of the measure to ban PFAS from food packaging back in July. Now ahead of the vote last July, dozens of NGOs sent a joint letter to legislators urging the passage of what they called the common sense measure for stopping one of the primary sources of PFAS exposure. Many of these organizations, united under the Just Green Partnership, hailed passage of the legislation as a major step to addressing ongoing concern over the persistent substance class. But the American Chemistry Council called the legislation flawed for its failure to recognize the unique properties, uses, and environmental and health process of individual substances within the class. And amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, the bill's adoption could make it difficult for consumers and retailers to access needed products, it said. So Terry, can you tell us a little about the ban and how it differs from laws that Washington and Maine have passed in recent years? Yeah, hi Kate, Uh, sure. As you noted, New York is now the third state to pass a law intended to ban PFASs in food packaging. So as you've mentioned, Washington state was the first with uh, that state approving legislation in early 2018 and Maine followed suit then in 2019. Uh, Fast forwarding now to, to this year, New York's law gives businesses in the state just a little over two years to remove PFASs from food packaging made from paper, paperboard or other plant fibers. And so, as you had mentioned, that uh, 31st of December 2022 date, after that time, it will be illegal to sell or distribute these types of food paper wrapping if they contain intentionally added PFASs. 
And uh, so these substances are often added to food packaging to make them either water or grease resistant. So you can hold or carry uh, here in the US that burger or fries, or maybe the uh, uh, bowl of salad without grease or oil uh, dripping onto you or your table. And like laws in Washington state and Maine, New York's law defines PFOSs as any fluorinated organic chemicals that contain at least one fully fluorinated carbon atom. So effectively, it applies really to the full class of PFAS substances <clears throat> across all these three states. But unlike Washington or Maine, New York's PFAS law, as it's currently written, kicks in at the end of 2022 with no exceptions. Uh, the bans envisioned in Washington and Maine, on the other hand, can't begin until two years after a safer alternative is identified. And under those laws, they defined an alternative uh, that has to be both readily available and at a comparative cost. And uh, both Washington and Maine, when they passed their laws, they initially envisioned the ban taking effect as early as the 1st of January, 2022. But since neither state has identified a suitable alternative yet, that date is effectively off the, off the table. In Washington state, the Department of Ecology is due to present an update on their search for an alternative uh, to the legislature this month. But even then, once an alternative is identified uh, in Washington and Maine, those states still must provide a two-year window before any ban would start. So as things stand now, while New York is the third state to pass a law to ban PFOSs in food packaging, it could be the first one to see its ban take full effect because it doesn't require that alternative to be, uh, to, to find that alternative first. Okay, great. Thanks, Terry. Um, so why did New York decide to take a harder line on PFAS? And you know, how might this impact the food service industry or other companies that sell or distribute these food packaging items in New York State? Yeah, well, New York's law more closely follows recently expanded, <clears throat> excuse me, recently expanded model legislation from the Toxics in Packaging Clearinghouse, or TPCH. And that's a coalition of nine US states, including New York and another big economy, California, that promotes a consistent approach to regulating substances in all types of packaging. And no state's required to adopt the TPCH's model legislation, um, but, but it does have, uh, uh, does influence states. Um, its provisions restricting the use of heavy metals like cadmium or lead in packaging have served as, as the basis for laws in about 19 states so far. And this past summer, uh, the group proposed adding phthalates and PFOSs to its list of substances that should be restricted from packaging. And TPCH said it favored an outright ban on PFOSs really to help spur innovation and force change. And New York's law incorporates this strict ban in its new food packaging law. Now, as you had mentioned in the introduction, Kate, a number of industry groups really aren't particularly happy with New York's law. They've said uh, these types of laws, they don't really add any protections and could harm the food services industry. The Food Packaging Alliance, as well as the Alliance for uh, telomere chemistry stewardship, which is a group affiliated with the American Chemistry Council, have both noted that food packaging generally must get approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. 
So they say these restrictions then could prohibit items that have already been okayed by the FDA. And the Telomere Alliance, uh, in addition to, to criticizing New York's law for painting too broad a brush and, and treating all PFAS at the same, uh, as the same, uh, same class of substances, said that the timing of New York's law is problematic as well, that it potentially could force the food service sector either to pay a lot more for PFAS-free materials or to use lower quality products. And they say this is coming at a time when carry out and delivery services that use a lot of food packaging products, obviously, that these have become central for, for many consumers. Okay, thanks, Terry. So we now have three states with laws intended to restrict PFAS in food packaging. Are more states likely to follow? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Well, so several states have taken action to restrict PFOSs. A lot of it started with uh, targeting firefighting foams as a way to address concerns about PFOS contamination um, uh, following reports of contamination in local groundwater. States like California, Michigan, and Wisconsin and others have taken action on firefighting foams and the use of PFOS in firefighting equipment. And there does look to be a little momentum for states to look at PFOSs in food packaging as well. So with New York, with nearly 20 million people, it's the fourth largest US state by population just behind Florida. So its size alone means it certainly could have some impact on what businesses do even outside the state. And uh, in addition, New York, Maine, and Washington haven't operated in a vacuum. Uh, a number of other states have also seen legislation introduced or even come close to passing laws of their own. Uh, just a couple examples, we saw bills introduced uh, this past year in Michigan and Vermont. Uh, Vermont's bill passed the state Senate last May, and the Senator, Virginia Lyons, who introduced that bill, has said it likely would have passed the state house as well had action in the Capitol not been slowed by the COVID pandemic. And Ms. Lyons said she plans to introduce that same bill in Vermont early next year. Uh, and of course, in Vermont, that legislation would go well beyond food packaging. It would restrict PFOSs and carpets, uh, as well as firefighting foams. It would also impose some restrictions on, on phthalates and food packaging, um, and even expand to bisphenols as well. Uh, elsewhere in California, the state's Department of Toxic Substances Control it has proposed uh, to list plant fiber-based food packaging that contain PFOSs as a priority product under its Safer Consumer Products Program. So that would set in motion an alternatives analysis process in California and potential regulatory action there. And other states too, like Wisconsin, uh, they have a PFOS Action Council that have discussed potential restrictions. So you'll see a lot of those states that I mentioned that had taken action on firefighting foams are also looking at PFOSs in food packaging. And now even in the US Congress, the House and Senate recently agreed on a $700 billion military spending bill that includes a number of provisions addressing PFOSs, including banning uh, PFOS and PFOA in certain military cookware by uh, the spring of 2023. And there's also just been pressure on food chains to eliminate PFOSs from their food packaging materials. Grocery stores like Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and Albertsons have worked to eliminate PFOSs from at least some 
of their carryout food packaging in recent years. And fast food chains like Chipotle and Sweetgreen have said they'll eliminate PFASs from their, those molded fiber bowls uh, by the end of this year. And some bigger chains like Taco Bell have agreed to phase PFASs out of their consumer food packaging uh, by as soon as 2025. So it's certainly not a huge wave of action, but there definitely is some movement toward taking action on PFASs and food packaging materials. Okay, thanks. Thanks again, Terry. Now let's move to Europe and the UK, where the government department DEFRA has confirmed that following the end of the Brexit transition period, its independent rules regulation will follow the same legislative timeframes for exemptions set by the EU. It's one bit of clarity for chemicals regulation in what has otherwise been described as a mess by industry figures in the UK as the Brexit transition period ends and the UK activates its independent chemicals regime. Representatives of several industry associations vented their frustration over the looming GB reach at Chemical Watch's November virtual conference on post-Brexit options for a UK chemicals law. Concerns were raised about the unpredictability of UK laws and possible divergence from EU standards. In an atmosphere of exasperation, Peter Newport from the Chemical Business Association told the conference that industry is being forced into a situation of having to jump off the cliff onto the rocks amid continued uncertainty about whether a trade deal would be struck with the EU and if it would include chemical sector specific content. So Luke, um, can you talk us through how ROS will continue to be applied in Britain once we move beyond the Brexit transition period at the end of December? Thanks Kate. This is a crucial week in Brexit negotiations with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen expected to hold a significant second phone call soon in the hopes of breaking the deadlock on key sticking points, including governance and level playing field. Negotiators would need to decide on an agreement by the end of this week to allow time for it to be formally processed via both parliaments before the transition period expires on the 31st of December. The industry has been holding its breath up to this moment, craving regulatory alignment and with that predictability and certainty. For companies based in the UK, there was some clarity this week concerning certain elements of the EU directive on the restriction of hazardous substances in electrical and electronic equipment or ROS and how this would look for Britain and Northern Ireland after the Brexit transition period. DEFRA, as you mentioned, Kate, has confirmed that Britain will implement an independent ROS regime starting on the 1st of January. DEFRA says that it will have the capacity to assess and grant exemptions to restrictions under the regulation, and it confirmed that when it will be looking at amendments to the list of restricted substances, and when it assesses exemptions, it will ensure that ongoing developments and the EU's methodology are considered. It added that there is scope for divergence in decision-making between the UK and the EU. That's something we've known for some time now, and something industry has been strongly opposed to. It's also important to note this independent regime will apply only in England, Scotland and Wales. The ROS directive is listed in Annex 2 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, meaning that the EU regime 
will continue to apply in Northern Ireland. Okay, thanks, Luke. So what has been the response of trade bodies to the news that the independent ROS regulation will follow the same legislative timeframes for exemptions set by the EU? And why is this development so important to them? Well, it's certainly a step in the right direction um, that helps industry plan and prepare for applications to extend the authorised use of restricted chemicals, which perform a vital role in electrical and electronic equipment, and for which industry says there are no sufficient alternatives. Uh, recently, Susanna Baker, the Associate Director for Climate, Environment and Sustainability at Trade Body Tech UK, said that while regulatory divergence is still a very real possibility, the risk would potentially have been greater if the EU and UK adopted different legislative timeframes and substance identification methodologies. Okay, thanks, Luke. So before we move on, um, is there any update on other chemicals legislation making its way through the UK Parliament? Yes, so several pieces of chemicals legislation are making their way through UK Parliament at the moment in the form of statutory instruments, including CLP and POPs. The main focus for most companies on both sides of the, of the channel has been EU reach and the UK's transposition of it into law. So in October, the fourth draft UK REACH statutory instrument was laid, known colloquially as GB REACH. This will help to ensure the British government meets its obligations under the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and sets the proposed extended registration deadlines in law. This includes an extension that would allow businesses up to six years instead of two for the submission of full data sets. The REACH statutory instrument will be debated in the House of Lords this week. Apart from that, the Health and Safety Executive has recently published guidance advising businesses on what to do after the transition period for the GB CLP regulation, the import and export of hazardous chemicals or PIC, and the GB biocidal products regime. Great, thanks very much, Luke. So let's turn now to Saudi Arabia, where the government is hastening the approval of a technical regulation to restrict certain substances in electronics and electrical equipment with approval expected by as soon as the 7th of January. So Ginger, could you talk us through the detail of this regulation? and why the government in Saudi Arabia is keen to get this through so quickly. Hi, Kate. Sure. So the government told me that it decided to expedite the adoption of this technical regulation after it found products on the market in Saudi Arabia that contained dangerous substances um, that represented a danger to the safety of consumer health and the environment. Now, since 2018, there's been discussion about adopting a regulation like this for the entire Gulf region. And a draft was published by the trade body, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which comprises six countries in the region, including Saudi Arabia. But these discussions at regional level have not moved forward yet into concrete action. So after finding products on the market with these hazardous substances in them, Saudi Arabia decided it needed to adopt this at a national level as soon as possible to reduce the risk to consumers in the country. And it really is in a rush. It just published the bill on the 20th of November, and it's using something called an urgent action procedure to shorten the amount of time that stakeholders have to comment on the draft bill. The government plans to have it approved by 7th of January. 
Okay, thanks, Ginger. So you mentioned that draft technical regulation at the at the regional level uh, for Gulf states. Um, what has happened to that draft technical regulation um, to restrict the use of certain hazardous substances in electrical and electronic equipment? Sure. Well, as I said, it was published in 2018. And in January of this year, I was told that it was at the final draft stage and just awaiting approval from the Gulf Cooperation Council's technical group. Uh, and, and they expected in January for that to have happened as early as November of this year, so last month. But um, with the pandemic and with everything that's happened this year, it seems there's been a bit of a delay. And part of that is due to some disagreement over how to finance the implementation of the regulation in these six countries once it's adopted. So the countries, which are uh, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. They're currently discussing a harmonized financial model for implementing this regulation, but it's not going to be ready in the near future, probably not for at least another six months or so, according to an official from the Gulf Standards Organization. And the official also added that extending timelines and having some bureaucratic hangups is not unusual in that part of the world. So it's not a sign that the regulation is going to be scrapped or put on hold. Um, it's, it's coming. It's just coming slowly. And that's probably why Saudi Arabia decided to go ahead and implement the regulation nationally. Uh, they know they'll need to at some point anyway. The United Arab Emirates actually has also adopted a regulation on this topic. Okay, thanks very much, Ginger. Now, given this uptick in activity from Saudi Arabia, are we expecting any further developments with regards to chemicals management? That's a good question. Um, Saudi Arabia currently doesn't have any overarching chemicals management framework, which is surprising because it's a significant uh, power when it comes to chemicals management. It has a, it has a big industry and the chemical sector in the country is actually the largest in the Middle East and North Africa and the fifth largest chemicals production market in the world. Um, but they don't have an overarching framework. Last year I was told that its environment ministry was working on drafting a national inventory and also working on a sort of longer term chemical safety program. But those plans were put on hold earlier this year due to the pandemic and it's not clear when a draft might be ready. The next big chemicals management milestone in the region will likely be the adoption of the UN's globally harmonized system of classifying and labeling of chemicals. A regional draft was sent to member states earlier this year for consideration, and it could be adopted as a voluntary standard by the Gulf states in the next few months. Then each country would need to transpose this into their domestic legislation to make it mandatory. And that could take another two to three years. Okay, thanks very much indeed, Ginger. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you again to Terry, to Luke and Ginger for sharing their insight into today's stories with us. And thank you to you, our audience, for listening to today's episode. We hope you found it valuable. If you would like to find out more about the topics from today's discussion, please head over to the Chemical Watch website at chemicalwatch.com. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, goodbye. Unlock the full value of your compliance and product stewardship 
with world-leading insight and intelligence from Chemical Watch. To find out more or request a demo, visit chemicalwatch.com. Chemical Watch. Intelligence to transform product safety. Chemical Watch Podcast.